Do you want to learn apologetics but become bogged down by weighty terms and philosophical concepts? Do you want to learn how to defend your faith but you don't have the time and finances to afford seminary training? If this describes you, then the layman's manual on Christian apologetics is for you. Written with a layperson in mind, the layman's manual on Christian apologetics defends the rationality of the Christian faith in terms accessible to everyone while adding practical insights and humorous stories. Gary Habermas has added a foreword to the work in which he describes the need for apologetics in the church. Full of useful resources, the layman's manual on Christian apologetics discusses the essence of truth and how you can know what is true before defending the existence of God, talking about the problem of evil, miracles, then noting the historical reasons for believing that Jesus' resurrection was an authentic event of history, and also describing how you can trust the words of the New Testament. I am pleased to announce that the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is now available at withandstock.com and at amazon.com. That is W-I-P-F and S-T-O-C-K dot com and amazon.com. The Kindle version is soon soon upcoming. Be sure to pick up your copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. I appreciate it and may God bless. Listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking of the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics, while taking Christian truth into the arena of ideas, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and this is your host for the time we have together, yours truly, Brian Chilton. I apologize for being gone so long. Uh, the uh, month of November was very busy. Uh, in fact, uh, during this time, I was uh, the, the book, The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics, my first book, was published, and so uh, had that going on, papers going on on and uh, just a lot of stuff going on at one time and so unfortunately the uh, podcast uh, had had to uh, take a take a back seat for a little while, but uh, we're back on. Hopefully, we'll be back on at a regular schedule now. Uh, but on today's podcast, uh, for a special podcast, I want to catch you up on uh, a lesson that I did last Wednesday night at Westfield Baptist Church. Uh, this lesson is on biblical interpretation. So let's go now to the service already in progress. Tonight. Uh God's been dealing with me about something for, uh, well, really ever since I uh, went up to Liberty last time. I had a class with uh, Dr. Cleaver, and, and we were talking about how the early church uh, members, early church fathers is what they're called, how they interpreted Scripture. 
And Dr. Purser, who was here with us for homecoming, he challenged us in the class. He stopped by that Friday, and he asked the question, are we, are we uh, teaching how to interpret the Bible? And I never thought about that, really. I uh, never thought about that, about teaching a lesson on biblical interpretation. And the more I thought about it, the more God was dealing with my heart that, that this is something that needs to be done. This is something we need to talk about. This is something we need to do. So this is the first time I've ever taught this uh, before, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this tonight, and I hope this will be helpful. And so the question is, how do we properly interpret the Bible, allowing the Bible to speak for itself? And before, and before we move on, we have to understand that uh, a lot of in our society, we've been impacted and influenced by a lot of different uh, ideas that have come down the pipe. And uh, one such idea that's come, come into uh, play in modern times is the question of how do we interpret a passage of uh, not only scripture but any book. And some people have had the idea that, uh, that a person makes the truth out of the passage what's, what they want it to say. In other words, you make the passage say what you want it to say and then that becomes true for you but it may not be true for other people. But is that the proper way to really interpret Scripture? Quite honestly, does anybody really want to be mistaken? Does anyone want uh, your words to be confused? Do you really want uh, your, your ideas to be misconstrued into something you didn't say? I don't think any of us really do. None of us want to be misunderstood. None of us want to be misunder misinterpreted. And the same thing applies to Scripture. The same thing applies to the truths of Scripture. And so biblical interpretation is a very important thing. In fact, with biblical interpretation, we must understand that every Bible passage has only one truth, but multiple applications. There's only one truth that's being communicated in any given passage of Scripture, but there may be multiple applications. And so the question is, what is the Bible? We know there to be 66 books. We know uh, that there's 27 in the New Testament, 39 in the Old Testament. Uh, they span over uh, thousands of years, written by at least 40 individuals. But what is the Bible? Well, we turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 for the answer. It says, All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, that the Christian, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So let's break this down a little bit. First of all, we see the word all Scripture. This indicates, now Paul, when he's writing this, he's referring to the Old Testament. But we understand as Christians, as we go back and look at the New Testament, that it is also part of, of the scriptural canon. It's also part of what we know to be the Word of God. So we have to understand that all Scripture is inspired by God. That means the Holy Spirit guided men to write down the words that He wanted. Now, I do believe that he wrote through their personalities, through the context of their culture, through the context of their language, but God communicated these truths through these individuals. And so every passage of Scripture is inspired by God. That means there's something that God wanted to be, to be communicated to us uh, in all passages of Scripture. So that means that the Old Testament is important. Amen? That means we cannot divorce the Old Testament from the New Testament. 
Uh, that, that is just absolutely absurd to even consider that because Jesus, the Bible that Jesus had, the Bible that Paul had, was the Old Testament. So we can't divorce the New Testament from the Old. All passages of Scripture are inspired. And we notice the inspiration of God. The word is theonoustos, which means God breathed. God inspired these individuals. Now, did these guys know as they were writing these texts, hey, I'm inspired of God and I'm writing down Scripture? Probably not. I don't know that they did. I knew that they felt the presence of God upon them. But did they realize that this text was being inspired of Scripture? Maybe not. But the, the, but the point is, is that God breathed upon these individuals, directed these individuals to write down the truths that we have in Scripture. We also see that it's profitable. This is important. It's profitable for us as Christians in four different ways. First of all, it's profitable for correct doctrine. That means that God has revealed certain truths about Himself, certain truths about eternity in the confines of the Word of God. Now, does He tell us everything in the Bible? No. In fact, John even writes in the fourth gospel that not every deed that Jesus did, not everything that Jesus said was documented in the four gospels because if everything were, there wouldn't be enough books to hold the contents of, of what could be said. Uh, so not everything that, about God is revealed in Scripture, but we have the most important truths. We have the things that God has revealed to us about Himself. Those things that we need to know about God are revealed in Scripture. It's also important for reproof. This, te this term means the proof of the Christian worldview, indicating that uh, our beliefs are, are defendable. Uh, they are verifiable. Paul even says this in 1 Corinthians 15. If the resurrection did not happen, you shouldn't be a Christian. That's what he says. He says if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then our faith is in vain. We're still in our sins and we're a people to be most pitied. That's what he said in 1 Corinthians 15. So it comes down, did the resurrection of Christ happen? If it did, as Paul verifies that it did, then Christianity can be believed. The Old Testament gives us stories of people who encountered God in many different ways, and we can verify that that's true. We also see that it's important for correction. Now, nobody likes to be corrected, amen? Anybody like to be told, hey, we're wrong? Anyone like saying that? Husbands? Have you ever told your wives, honey, I was wrong and you were right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, how did that go over? I mean, what, was that something you enjoyed doing? Uh, no, none of us like to be told that we're wrong. But the Bible tells us, it corrects us in our bad behavior. It brings us into a, to repentance, which is a change of mindset, a change of heart, a change in the direction of our lives. And it also instructs us in righteousness, teaching us the way of holiness and how we should live. The Bible is not only theologically deep and philosophically rich, it is also very practical in what it tells us. It's very practical in what it tells us. And the truths, the ethical truths we find in Scripture are absolutely true. So what are the results of this? Well, we see, first of all, we have correct doctrine. This, uh, the, the term artios speaks of a person who is wholly righteous. If you follow the words of Scripture, you're not going to go wrong. Amen? If you follow the truths of Scripture, you will live a holy life. It also means that we are uh, equipped... 
Uh, we are equipped as well. Equipping means that the fact that we are uh, equipped to do, uh, trained to do the things that we should do uh, to live out the life that we're called to live and be the people that God has called us to be. And so there is a danger in bad interpretation. Amen? There is a danger in bad interpretation of Scripture. Bad or, a bad interpretation makes the Bible say things that it never intended to say. If we don't use proper interpretation, we're going to make the Bible say things it doesn't intend to say. And I want to say this, and I don't hope no one takes offense to this, but it's absolutely true. I've heard people say before, I'm just going to open up the Scripture and I'm just going to let the words come out. Two things there is that can be said about that. One, that's very lazy. And two, that's very disrespectful. Because if we understand this to truly be the Word of God... We should take the interpretation of Scripture very seriously. Because if we don't proclaim the right truths of Scripture, James says God is going to hold us accountable for that. And he also tells us that not many people should be teachers, not many people should be preachers, because we're held to a higher accountability because of the interpretations we give from Scripture. And heaven help our society with the bad interpretations that's coming across on the media and on television as well. We can see that there is a person who is well known for misinterpreting Scripture. You know who that is? Satan himself. And if you want to see an example of bad interpretation, go to the temptation of Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the devil takes him up, uh, up to the uh, holy city, setting him up on the pinnacle of the temple. And he quotes, uh, he quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. To protect you so that you will not even, uh, you, you will, you will, they'll bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. If you go back and read Psalm 91, that's not what God says in that passage of Scripture. God does say that He'll protect us. God does say that He'll send His holy angels. But that does not mean that we're to test God. Church, if you go out and stand in the middle of a highway and an 18-wheeler hits you, for standing there in a the highway, you can't blame God for doing that. Amen? We, we only can blame ourselves if we stand in the middle of a highway and get hit by an 18-wheeler. Jesus comes back, however, and offers a proper interpretation in Matthew 4-7. Quoting from Deuteronomy 8-3, He says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. He threw it back in Satan's face with proper biblical interpretation. So biblical interpretation is very, very important. So there are some examples of bad interpretation. In 1 Timothy 6.10, some people will say, and we could give a long list, but to save on time, I'm limiting it to this, just two. One is obvious. The second one is not quite, and I'll explain. First of all, some people will say that money is evil. Is money evil? Is that what 1 Timothy 6.10 says? Can, can anybody, does anybody know what 1 Timothy 6.10 actually says? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, is what the Scripture says. For some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So they take the love of money, or they take money, they say money is the root of all evil, but that's not what the Bible says. You can make the Bible say all kinds of things. Did you know that you can even make the Bible say there is no God? If you misinterpret the Scripture, you can make the Bible say that there is no God. 
But the Bible fully says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Proper biblical interpretation is absolutely critical. The second one is a little bit different. The idea that Jesus was a carpenter is somewhat true, but not completely true. So in Mark 6, 3, it talks about that uh, Jesus, after 70 years... Uh, no, I'm sorry, let me go back. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Well, if you go back and you look up the word tecton, which is the word used for uh, the word carpenter, it actually means something like a contractor. And if you go in, in the Middle East and you look at the houses that they built, they built with limestone. So most likely the carpenter work that Jesus would have done was working more with rock and stone. Now these visions we have, these, uh, these things we see on television of Jesus being a weak, anemic person, I don't think is true. Because someone who's lifting rocks all day, they're not going to be wimpy. <laughs> if someone who's lifting rocks all day and building houses with rock all day, they're not going to be frail. So the word tecton refers to someone who works with all kinds of materials most certainly limestone. So the idea we have of him only working with wood doesn't cohere with what the Bible actually says. And so even doing word studies is important many times to get the truth of Scripture. So uh, also we have to be careful with this. On many graduation cards, and I'm going to use this as a case study, you'll probably see Jeremiah 29 verse 11 quoted. <laughs> you know I'm going with this one. Uh, many, many of these cards will say... Where Jeremiah says, For I know the plans I have for you, this is the Lord's declaration, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And on these graduation cards, we give our graduates these cards and say, God God has a plan for your life. You're going to have all good things coming to you. You're not going to have any problems. He's going to direct your paths. It's all going to be sunshine and roses. But is that what Jeremiah 29.11 actually says? Well, let's take a look and see. Uh, and this is the question. Do graduation cards properly interpret Jeremiah 29, 11? Not completely. So this leads us to four steps for biblical interpretation. And we're going to come back to Jeremiah uh, 29, 11 here in just a minute. So the first step in proper biblical interpretation is, number one, understand the verse in the context of the passage. And I've heard many people say this. Don't read Bible verses alone. Read Bible passages. Because if you read the verse out of its context, you're going to miss the point of actually what's being communicated. Because the Bible was not written with chapters and verses. It wasn't written that way. Chapters and verses didn't actually come to many centuries later. Uh, I can't remember the exact date, but it was a long time after the Scripture was completed and the canon was finalized that chapters and verses even come along. So if you read just a small Bible verse, you're going to probably misquote the passage of Scripture. So understand the verse in the context of the passage. And this requires reading the verse within the context of the paragraph. Uh, reading within the context of the paragraph. If the verse doesn't make sense, read the paragraph. If the paragraph doesn't make sense, read the paragraphs in front of it and after it. Read it in the context of the flow of Scripture. Secondly, read it within the context of the chapter. See what's going on all around that verse. So if you don't understand the verse, read the paragraph. If you don't understand the paragraph... Read the chapter. And if the chapter doesn't make sense, 
Read it within the context of the entire book. Read it within the context of what's going on. Uh, understand who is writing the, this uh, book. Understand what's taking place. So read it within the context of the book itself. And finally, read it within the context of the book's genre. Now, there are different genres. In fact, there are probably about eight genres of Scripture. And it's absolutely critical that we understand this. And I say this before we start our uh, study on the book of Proverbs for a very good reason. Wisdom literature is not meant to be understood the way things happen 100% of the time. Because with wisdom literature, it'll say something like, train up a child in the way he should go and he will never uh, depart from that path. But has anyone ever known someone, a good parent, to train up his or her child in the way of the Lord and they strayed from that path? Does that mean the Bible's wrong? No. If you understand the genre of wisdom literature, what they're saying is this is the way things are supposed to work. These are the way things normally work most of the time. And if you go and read other wisdom literature like the book of Job, we understand the, uh, the, the times when it doesn't quite work out the way we think. So what are the different biblical genres? Well, first of all, we see the law. This is very, very difficult. Uh, the law includes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If, if you're reading through the Scripture all the way through from Genesis to Revelation, usually it's around Numbers and Leviticus where people start tripping up. Because you read these laws, some of these laws don't make sense. And we think to ourselves, where can we find an application in today's time from these laws? Well, we see three kind of laws. First of all is the ceremonial laws, like the sacrifices, the thing they did for the temple, uh, for these different sacrifices to take place. The second are the civil laws uh, that's talking about the government. But within all of these laws, there's a moral that's being given in the Word of God. The point is, if you're reading the law, try to find the moral that's there. Try to find the principle, the truth, the moral truth that God is giving in that passage of Scripture. I grant you this is sometimes difficult, but that's what we try to do. Secondly, there's the aspect of poetry. There's the genre of poetry. This is the second largest genre in the Scripture. In fact, 33% of the Bible is poetic. We see this in the Psalms. We see this in the Prophets. We see different figures of speech. We see different uh, meters and measures because these are prayers oftentimes put to songs. And so that's what this uh, poetry is. And we see all kinds of different poetry within the Scripture. There are these lamentations. They're also called these imprecatory songs. These are where somebody has really had a bad day. Something is going wrong. And they're screaming out to God saying, God, why are you letting this happen? Why are you letting this take place? And one of the more infamous passages of Scripture is found in one of the prayers where they say, God, would you just take those enemies and dash their babies against a stone, against a rock? Now, that's obviously not a command of God there. What that is is a person who's caught in exile. Their family probably has been tormented. Their family has been probably... Uh, they've been... Uh, taken away from their family they're caught up they're distraught they're angry and they're they're lashing out saying god do something to these people now does he really mean to take their babies and dash them against a stone probably not but this is a guy who is really mad anyone ever been furious anyone ever been really mad anyone ever said to the lord lord i wish you would just get that person and do something with them anyone ever done that all of us have if we're honest 
All of us have been caught up with this anger. But we can see this in the Psalms, that even these biblical characters, these biblical writers were caught up in the emotion of the moment and they're writing things out. So I think that's what we see in those Lamentation Psalms. We also see Psalms of Thanksgiving. Well, we, this is Thanksgiving, giving thanks unto the Lord for something that He's done. There's also a poetry that talks about the salvation history of, uh, of, of the land, how God has saved the people and continues to do so, almost like a journal if you think of it that way. There are theological psalms which praise God for who He is. Wisdom psalms that talk about the practical nature of the faith. And finally, the songs of trust saying, I'm going through a difficult time, Lord, but I know you're going to see me through. And I trust that you're going to be there for me to see me all the way through. One of the things that we can see is that these were very human people. That these were human beings. They were caught up in different circumstances. And what we see in the Psalms is how they relate to God. How they go to God in the good times and how they go to God in the bad. But we also see narrative, which is another genre. This is the largest genre of Scripture. 43%. Uh, this is where we talk about uh, stories that happen to individuals. We talk about uh, things that take place uh, with David and things that take place with different characters in history. And the interesting thing about the Scripture is that it's very honest. It's very honest when someone does something bad, that it calls them out on it. Uh, it. It doesn't pull any punches, quite honestly. It's very honest. And one of the things we need to do as we're reading the genre of narrative is to understand the plot, what's going on. It's kind of like watching a movie if you really think about it. What's the background? What's taking place? Who are the heroes? Who are the villains? What's the conflict taking place? Uh, what are the situations that's happening? And the narrative is really interesting because really if we put ourselves in that circumstance, we can almost see how these individuals relate to us and the circumstances we go through in life. Now, no, we may not mess up the way David did, but we do mess up from time to time, and we can relate to God's forgiveness and how God relates to these individuals. And that's one of the things we can do as we, as we read through these, uh, this narrative section or genre of Scripture. There's also wisdom, as I mentioned before. With wisdom, wisdom doesn't tell us the way things happen all the time. Now, in the, in the, in the Proverbs, you're going to see uh, if you work hard... It's going to tell you if you work hard and you, and you put forth an effort, you should succeed in life. But anyone ever worked hard and didn't quite work out for you the way you thought? <laughs> anyone ever worked really hard at a job but someone else was given the promotion instead of you? Now, does that make the Bible untrue? No. Because the way it's supposed to work is if you work hard and you put forth an effort, then generally speaking, you're going to be the one to get the promotion if things operate the way it's supposed to. Again, wisdom literature is very practical information that tells us the way things normally operate. Job tells us that uh, you know, sometimes you can be a person of faith. You can do everything right and still suffer loss in your life. But through the book of Job, we see that God is faithful no matter what may come. In the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, a lot of times we talk about working hard and being blessed with material possessions. But if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to need a Prozac by the time you get to the third chapter. Because the, because the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, Vanity of vanities, everything's vanity. Everything under the sun is nothing but vanity. 
Uh, you know, the, your life is a vanity. My life is vanity. The, the trees are vanity. Everything in creation is vanity. And you read that and you think, my goodness, this is depressing. And it doesn't even make sense till you get to the very last where he says, the chief purpose of it all is to glorify God, to serve Him. That's what gives life purpose. That's what he says at the very end of Ecclesiastes. Song of Songs. Uh, Tim Burton, I think, is the only one I've ever... Well, I've never heard him preach, but he's preached a message from the Song of Songs. I don't know that I've ever heard a message preached from the Song of Songs. I better be careful. God might lead me to do that. Uh, but this is a love poem. This is a love poem that comes, and we can see the love of God in this poem as well, as well as the love that we have uh, for our loved ones. Anyhow, uh, this is wisdom literature. Prophecy. Prophes, prophets were master wordsmiths. Uh, they used puns, ironies, and turns of phrase. And uh, we see two categories of prophets. The major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, uh, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The only reason some are called major and the others are called minor has to do with the length of the books. It has nothing to do with the importance of their message. Because quite honestly, some of the minor prophets are very, very powerful in what they say. Uh, probably some of the most powerful books in all of Scripture. Uh, their primary role, however, we have to understand, they do foretell the future. But their primary role is not foretelling the future. Their primary role is they are proclaimers of God's Word. They are telling the nation, you have messed up. You've got to turn around and repent. You've got to fix this situation or judgment is coming your way. And if we read the prophets in that light, we can almost see the modern culture in ancient Judea if we read it in that light. So uh, that's important to know. Also, we see the genre. Oh, yeah, the Messianic prophecy, that's part of what they do as well. We also see the genre of biography. And this is found in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the, these guys, uh, two of them were eyewitnesses. Matthew and John were eyewitnesses. Matthew was a tax collector, and he wrote down the teachings of Jesus. Now, some people say, oh, Matthew didn't write that, but here's the thing. Why in the world would you have Matthew being the writer of this gospel if it weren't true? Because he was a tax collector, and everybody hated tax collectors. <laughs> we talked about this last night in class, and one guy says, well, he said they're not very popular in today's time either, you know, quite honestly. But you, that would be the last person you would associate with the gospel. Matthew's name is associated with the gospel because he was the eyewitness, the very person that Jesus saved and led to write the gospel. Mark was the interpreter of Simon Peter. Mark wrote down the things that Simon Peter told him. So when you read the gospel of Mark, you're actually reading the eyewitness testimony of Simon Peter because Mark was Simon Peter's scribe. Luke was, man, he was a journalist par excellence, a historian like no other. He gathered together all this information from all kinds of different people. And in fact, there's even good reason to believe that he interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because if you look in the first few chapters, if you notice in the Christmas story, he talks about Mary pondered these things in her heart. Now, how in the world would he have known that unless Mary told him that? Because uh, Mary was still alive most certainly during the time that he wrote this gospel. So he would have had access to all this information. And John, the beloved disciple, 
Now some people say that he's not, but I think a clear reading of Scripture indicates that he was. The beloved disciple wrote down the truths of Scripture. Matthew is writing towards a Jewish audience. Mark is writing to a Roman audience. Luke is writing to the intellectual Greeks of the day. And John is actually writing to future generations of the church. All of them with a different category in mind, a different audience in mind. But the amazing thing is, you have four different perspectives on the life of Jesus. You have four individuals telling the story, and what an amazing job they do. Now understand this, that uh, that there may be some differences in the gospel, but if we understand what they're doing, if we understand that Matthew is uh, talking to the Jews and he's showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, that he's the new Moses who came to to give the law, then it helps us understand what they're doing in this passage of Scripture. And then also there's the epistles. Now... The epistles are letters, but the difference between a regular letter and an epistle is a regular letter is written to one individual. An epistle is written to a large group of individuals. And most of the time in these epistles, we have to understand that there's a problem that the apostle is addressing. The letters often address individual problems, but may hold a universal application. Especially if you read 1 and 2 Corinthians. Corinth, bless their hearts, they had all kinds of problems. (laughs) They were a church that just every time you turned around, they were having one problem after another. And Paul was just trying to keep his cool when he's writing these letters and he's addressing all these different issues that's taking place while trying to keep cool while doing so. If we understand that, then that will help us interpret the epistles uh, as we have it in Scripture. And lastly, there's the genre of apocalypse. We've just come through this. We've come through the book of Revelation. Daniel, the book of Revelation, parts of Jesus' message talk about things that happen in the end time. And a lot of times they'll use symbols and imagery to portray literal and spiritual truths. Now, when John says in Revelation that Jesus has seven eyes and seven horns, do you think he's being literal in that? No. Seven means complete. Eyes means wisdom. Horns represent strength. So as he's talking about Jesus having seven eyes, he says that he has perfect wisdom. As he has seven horns, it represents he has perfect strength. So understanding the genre will help us a lot to properly interpret interpret Scripture. So understand the text in the context. Secondly, understand the text in the writer's historical and sociological background. We have to ask the question, what would the original hearers have understood in the passage of Scripture? Because let's be honest, we're separated by at least 2,000 years. We're living in a completely different area. We're in the southeastern United States. They live in Israel. Uh, there's a different culture. Now, in some, in some churches, in some denominations, dancing is prohibited, completely prohibited. However, in Jewish culture... Dancing is a common thing. If you go to a wedding festival, expect there to be a lot of dancing going on because that's common in the Jewish, uh, Jewish culture. Uh, so we're also separated from, by language. I'm going to tell you, if, you, if you want a fun experience, go try to learn Greek and, uh, Greek and Hebrew. Uh, I, I did a little better with Greek than I did Hebrew, but Hebrew was a completely different beast. It's read from right to left. We read from left to right. So there are several different things that uh, separate us from the culture of the New Testament. So there are some certain tools that we can use that will help us as we interpret Scripture. 
One is an interlinear. And you don't have to learn the original languages to actually read it as it was read. If you get an interlinear, what it'll do is it'll list the original language, but it'll give you the, the word underneath what the word means. So that may be helpful. A good concordance is useful uh, as we look up different passages of Scripture and different uh, topics. A dictionary to, to talk about the different terms in Scripture will help us, and a good study Bible will go a long way in helping us to interpret the Scripture as well. So we first of all try to understand the Scripture in the context, and secondly, we, uh, we try to understand the text in the, in the writer's time frame, understanding what the writer is trying to communicate, what the people would have understood. And, la- and thirdly, we uh, see, as Duval and Hayes says, we must cross what they call the principalizing bridge. We take the truths in ancient times and we see what the message God is communicating to us and we put it in our perspective, put it in our time. We cross over that bridge looking, uh, considering the culture, the language, the time, the situations and the covenants that are going on and we see modern applications as to what's taking place. Ask the question, what is the theological principle in the text? What is God trying to communicate? Why did God preserve this for us in today's culture, for today's time? What is God trying to tell us? So in Jeremiah chapter 29, using this as an example, I think the theological message that was being presented was that God would bring out His plans for all people. If you go back to Jeremiah 29 and you look at the verses of before it and after it, you see that this is written for a people who were going into exile. They were going to face some disastrous situations. They were going to go through some troublesome times. So he's not saying that your future looks bright immediately. What he's saying is that you're going to go through some difficult times, but keep the faith because it's almost like Romans 8.28 In the end, all things are going to work out for your good because I mean something good for you. I mean something uh, powerful for your life. I'm going to bring out something great for you. Keep the faith. Keep on keeping home. Don't lose heart because the the good and the bad are all part of God's plan. And I'll be honest with you. I think that principle is even better than what the Hallmark cards try to tell us. The realization that life is not easy, but God is going to be with us through thick and through thin, no matter what may happen. So how do we look for these principles? Well, there are five pointers. The principle should be reflected in the text. It's not something we're making up, but it should be found in the text. The principle should be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. The principle should not be culturally bound. The principle should correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture. Does does the interpretation we have correspond with what the rest of the Bible says? God won't lie. The Bible tells us this. It's impossible to lie. So if we're interpreting Scripture in a way that contradicts other passages of Scripture, then we might not have it right. We might need uh, need to go back to the drawing board. And fifthly, the principle should reflect or be relevant to both the biblical and the contemporary audience. So we find that theological principle that God is trying to communicate. And finally, we find a relevant application. When we're studying the scripture, we need to ask the question. This may sound irreverent, but it's not. We need to ask the question, all right, so what? So what does that mean to me? So God has preserved this for a certain reason. What is he trying to say to my life 
through this passage of Scripture. And friends, it's been my experience that if we get the theological principle of Scripture, it's going to be far more powerful and far more enduring than anything we've tried to place in to Scripture. From the theological principle, find common links between yourself and the biblical text. These are people who had powerful encounters with God Himself. These are people who had powerful encounters with the risen Lord. They experienced God in His grandeur and His glory. And we, as His people, can too. What does this mean for us? What does the Scripture tell us? So the theological principle is that God doesn't promise that everything will work out smoothly. This whole idea of the health and wellness gospel, it is wholeheartedly not found in Scripture. God does not tell us that everything will be sunshine and roses. He doesn't promise us that life is going to be easy. For the Babylonian exiles, God says, listen, you're going to endure some bad stuff, but take heart, keep the faith, everything's going to work for your good in the end. Trust me, is what God is saying. Trust me. That's what he's saying. So we're all in this together. We also see that principle that all the exiles were going through this together. And I think that we as the people of God, we're in this together. We as the children of God are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And there's no denominational difference that separates us. If we have accepted Christ as our Savior, then praise the Lord, we're part of a big family. And I know the holidays can be tough for some people. Is for some individuals who are uh, who may may not have a family, or maybe they've gone through some difficulties. This time is going to be difficult for them. This time is is tough going through Christmas into the new year. But the wonderful thing about it is to as to understand this: whether you like me or whether you don't like me, we're family. Amen. Whether we like one another or whether we don't, we are part of the family of God. And just like any family, we're going to have some family members we like better than others. That's probably not a good thing to say, but it's true. But the reality is, is that we as a family, we're part of this together. We're part of this, this group together. We're part of the family of God. And so praise the Lord for that. We're not alone in this. We're in this together. And so in conclusion... Biblical interpretation may sometimes be difficult, but it is critically important to properly understand the Scripture. Bad interpretations... Now, one of this is funny, the other one is is not so funny. Bad interpretations, and I mean this with all my heart, may lead to things like this. Snake handling. (laughs) I don't think that there's a passage of Scripture that tells us that we should literally go out and take snakes and dance around with snakes. Anybody think that? I, I don't. I don't think there's a passage of Scripture that literally says that we should go snake handling. And so, even though that's kind of a funny thing to consider, bad interpretations of Scripture can also lead to cults, which may lead to things like this. Jim Jones was a very bad interpreter of Scripture. He led many, many people. How many people was it that died there? I can't remember. 900, I think you're right. 900 people committed suicide due to his bad interpretation. Do you still think interpretation is not important? I think it's critically important. I think guys like David Koresh could be linked into this. Many, many other people could be linked to this. Bad interpretations can lead to very bad results. It's very critically important that we properly interpret Scripture. 
And remember 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Dear kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time we have together. And Lord, help us to take seriously the importance of properly interpreting Your Word. Lord, we realize that proper biblical interpretation a lot of times takes a lot of work. We realize that it's a whole lot easier just to interject things, our, our opinions and perspectives into Scripture rather than trying to really see what Scripture's telling us. But Lord, we know that biblical interpretation is critical because it's important that we understand what you are trying to teach us, what you are trying to communicate to us, and what you want us or how you want us to live our lives. Lord, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, for loving us as you do. We thank you, Lord, this Thanksgiving season for blessing us with the bountiful, abundant blessings of life. A roof over our head, shoes on our feet, uh, food to eat, water to drink. And we thank you, Lord, for friends and family to share all of this with. Lord, as we go our separate ways, help us to be mindful of the ways that you've saved us the way that you bless us each and every day. And as the children of God, help us each and every single day to give you praise and glory for everything that's said and done. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, amen. Biblical interpretation is extremely important. And as we have seen in the lesson tonight, uh, we can see that it leads to very bad results if we don't take uh, proper inter- exegesis and proper hermeneutical strategies. And one of the biggest things I would, uh, would advise uh, people in interpreting Scripture is to always keep the Scripture in context. This is Brian Chilton. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. Remember, the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is now available at bookstores everywhere. You can especially find it at Amazon.com and Withinstock.com as well. Again, this is Brian Chilton. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. God bless, and we'll see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Mm-hmm.